guys would, you can open up to Hebrews 2. That's where we're going to be this morning, Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 15. And what I would say is I also want to read from the Creed, um, the section that we're focusing on this morning as we've been in this series for a little while. So I'm going to read from the Nicene Creed, and then we'll move into Hebrews 2. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And now Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And once again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The word of the Lord. Amen. So for those of you who've been around recently uh, in this season of Easter, you know we've been doing a series focused on the Nicene Creed uh, in these days. And in that first week, we just dealt with the first section of the Creed. Maybe one of the most memorable, right? You can always remember the first part of it, right? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And I think that, that statement, this broad statement of a belief in God, is something that neither ancient nor modern people will find offensive. If anything, it's the predominant sort of belief. There is some divine force behind our world. I think most people around the world resonate with that. At some level, greater or lesser, they, they, they feel some attachment to a deity, to a God. That's not really controversial. It's not really scandalous. But, but where we, we stepped into last week, when somebody like Jonathan stands up here and preaches that Jesus of Nazareth is God, That is a, an entirely different thing altogether, right? That, that's a, a much more scandalous and more controversial statement because what we're saying is that some nobody, itinerant, traveling preacher from some insignificant little region in Galilee in an insignificant little corner of the ancient Roman Empire, that Jesus is God. If you're going to make that sort of statement, you have to kind of back it up. You have to explain yourself here. You have some explaining to do. And I think that was one of the most significant challenges the early church was facing. What we talked about last week. 
How can we believe that Jesus is God? That was one of the, the, the biggest things they had to face as they were proclaiming the kingdom in the ancient world. But this week, we find ourselves facing another challenge. Another question many people probably have. How is it that having claimed Jesus is God, are you now claiming that he's also human? You have the audacity to say he is God and you spend all of this time emphasizing that Jesus is God and yet now you want to say he's human. See, in the ancient world, this claim was as nonsensical, as absurd as the first. It was bad enough that you're claiming that guy is God and now you want to say not only is he God, he is completely and thoroughly human. Because think about this. In our world and in theirs, but especially in theirs, divinity and humanity, they don't mix well. You've, you've probably studied Greek mythology in school. You watch it play out. The gods were prone to come down. And it was almost like a, a cautionary tale. Every time they tried to intermingle with humanity, it was a mess. It was a disaster. It never goes well for humanity and divinity to try and mix, much less in the same person, right? It doesn't go well. And that's how ancients seemed to see it. The notion of a God-man was somewhat foreign to them. In their minds, Jesus had to be either one or the other. He can't be everything. He can't be both. There's a, a story from the Gospel of Thomas. And you're probably not as familiar with the Gospel of Thomas. That's because it's not one of our Gospels. Uh, and that's because it's not as well attested to in the ancient world. The church rejected it as heresy, number one, but secondly, because it was not well attested to, it was not well verified in the ancient world. The gospels we have had been copied and recopied and spread. These stories had been verified, right? The church was much more skeptical of some of these other gospels. You've probably heard of the gospel of Judas. The gospel of Thomas was another that has all these infancy narratives. It's trying to fill in the holes in Jesus's childhood. Because what we know about is Jesus born as a baby and Jesus as a, a grown man, a rabbi with disciples following him, teaching throughout the countryside. We don't have anything in between, though. Luke gives us just this little picture of him at the temple, if you remember. But the Gospel of Thomas is trying to fill in all those holes. And it really, though we don't believe what's there, it illuminates how people understood Jesus. These were believing people who believed this about Jesus, okay? And in the story, there's this young boy, Jesus. Maybe he's the same age as Eli. Who knows? He's down by a stream, and he's playing near the water. And being near the water, he finds some of that, that wet clay. He begins to form it in his hands. He starts to make birds. Twelve little sparrows he's making. It's, it's seemingly harmless. The problem is, it's the Sabbath, and somebody catches Jesus doing this. Obviously, they're offended, so they go and they tell Joseph, Jesus' father, what's happening. And Joseph, being a good father, is, is going to go and set Jesus right. He's going to rebuke him, and just as he begins his reprimand, his speech, Jesus claps his hands, and the birds come to life and fly away. It's amazing, right? Joseph is amazed. The people standing there watching are amazed. Here's little boy Jesus crafting these, these birds from the dust. 
It's crazy. It's not well verified. But this is what people were having to do. As crazy as it sounds, as unverified as it may have been, this made more sense to them than the idea that Jesus was just an ordinary boy like the ones we see running around our church. That could not make sense to them. It, it didn't calculate for them. Many of these believers wanted people to see that Jesus from the earliest of ages was clearly exceptional. He was God, right? And they wanted you to see that. He was unique. And he did these kinds of things, these crazy sorts of things. There's all kinds of other like crazy stories about him. It was hard for people to conceive of Jesus as an ordinary little boy. It was difficult for them. How Jesus was nursed and weaned just like every other little boy. Maybe, maybe Jesus dealt with, with separation anxiety. Maybe Jesus was a wild child. Maybe he wore his parents out like so many other little boys can do because they run so hard, right? Jesus was an ordinary little boy. He was human. This is what the church believed and has taught throughout the ages. And this is why the creed's so necessary, if you think about it. You can read the Gospels. You can read the whole New Testament. People from all over the world have done that, and very often they come to differing conclusions, conflicting conclusions about who Jesus is from those narratives. It happens over and over again. In our culture now, even in the church, this happens. The same sort of conclusions can be made that, that you see in the ancient world. Some of these heretical conclusions that people came to. This is why the creed is so important. It helps us to understand what we're seeing in the Gospels. It serves as almost like an interpretive key, something we can read alongside of Scripture. It's not Scripture by any stretch, but it's trying to deduce from Scripture who we really believe Jesus is, who God is. And I think the question non-believing people ask and that the creed is so helpful with, and the question maybe you have asked as well at some point, is why is it so important for Jesus to be human? Why do we insist on teaching Jesus is a human being? He's not just fully God. He is completely and thoroughly human. Why does that matter? Because I think logically, very often we say, well, I get that Jesus needs to be God because I can't save myself. The only way I can be saved is if God does something. A man cannot save me. I know that. God must be the one to save me. I get that. That's important. So then why is humanity so important? Isn't it kind of like the less important of the two? And I think a lot of us have landed there over the years. And I think tons of people outside the church have landed there. And I think really to answer that question, two things are necessary. You first off have to define what in the world you mean by salvation because a lot of different people mean a lot of different things when they're talking about being saved, about God having saved and redeemed us. Secondly, you have to define what you mean by humanity. What does it even mean to be human? Like what do you mean when you say Jesus is human? How do you define humanity and what that looks like? And that's what we're going to do. That's, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning is, is looking at the creed, and looking at Hebrews 2 for this, this kind of answer, kind of drilling down into it. So the creed begins in this section, that it's, it's for us and for our salvation that Jesus came down, that Jesus became incarnate, that he was made human. What that means is, is Jesus ultimately had to be human for us to be saved. 
Again, we get that Jesus had to be God for us to be saved. That makes all kinds of sense. I understand that only God could do this. My redemption is, is not something a, a, a human is capable of, right? I get that God had to, to save me. But the creed and the author of Hebrews is saying he also had to be human for salvation to be complete. His humanity was just as significant in all of this. He had to be human. There's a reason he came in flesh and blood to us. The question, though, is what do we mean when we say salvation? What do we mean when we say that, that we're saved? Because I think most of us would probably land somewhere around God's redeemed me. God has, has, has redeemed me from the power of, of sin and death. He's redeemed me from slavery to those things. He's forgiven me of my debts through his self-giving love as demonstrated on the cross. We'd even take it a step further. Not only has he forgiven my debts, not only has he removed everything that I might have owed, he's made me righteous. He's made me holy even. And that's what Easter ultimately is all about. That's what we're saying over and over again throughout this season. He didn't just forgive us in the cross. He is making us new through the resurrection. He's raising us to life, right? There's something different happening. We're not just liberated from slavery to sin and death. We're given a whole new status in life altogether. It is beyond just the fact that he's erasing what you owed and what you did and who you were. No, it's not just that. He's given you something better in its place. He's credited something to you. That's what Paul says in Romans 4. He's trying to explain that we're not saved by what we do, the things that we manage to accomplish, or obedience to the law. And he uses Abraham as the picture. Abraham is a Jewish man who lived long before the law ever had been given to God's people. And Paul emphasizes, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He says, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteous, righteousness. He believed, he trusted God, and that was his righteousness in God's eyes. He couldn't follow the law. He couldn't do all of those things. This is what he emphasizes. And we, too, Paul is saying, by believing, by trusting in this salvation of Jesus, God is counting us as righteous. He's crediting that as righteousness to us. We are made righteous and holy. And if you look in our passage today, this is Hebrews 2, verse 11, and it takes it a step further. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So then Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I, I, I don't know that you see Jesus that way, as your brother as family. This is the picture he's giving us. It's not just that, that we're no longer slaves. It's that we're now royalty. It's not just that you're no longer a slave. It's that the prince of heaven says you're his brother or sister. Like that's a different level, right? There's not just this removal of something. There's this incredible gift in its place. Something is credited to you and now you find yourself having this incredible brother. Question, though, how can Jesus call us brothers and sisters if he is God 
and we're just humble creatures. What do we have in common with him if he is God and we are just humble creatures? His humanity means something. It matters. That's what verse 14 is drilling into. If you look at that in chapter 2. Since, therefore, the children have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in their humanity. Jesus has embraced what it means to be human, to be creaturely, to be our brother in the truest sense, not just in some spiritual sense at a distance. This isn't just lip service. Jesus isn't just saying something nice. This isn't a metaphor. Jesus is truly human. He's the God-man. This is what we teach and will continue to press into. He's truly family. And the only way we could be brought into that family is if Jesus is truly human. But here's the, here's the next thing, though. When we're talking about salvation, when we're trying to define salvation, what does salvation mean, right? It has to go beyond my own individual issues. That's what we tend to do when we're talking about salvation. We talk about my own sin. We talk about my own struggle and what God did. And that is beautiful. That is good. But salvation is not just about God's rescue of me. Salvation is about something far greater than that. It's not just individual. We live in a very individualistic culture. And so when we think of salvation, we think of ourselves. That's not because we're selfish or self-centered necessarily. It could be. Not necessarily the case. It's just how we think of things. But salvation is beyond just God's rescue of me. Salvation is God's restoration of his good world. Salvation is, is God's restoration of his good creation. God has set about redeeming his good world, what was originally good, which has yet to see his full intent for it. He's redeeming. You and I are a part of that salvation. God's not just making me new. John says in Revelation, he's making all things new. He is restoring his good world. This is what's at the heart of, of the gospel. Not just me, but this whole thing. So when I, I talk about salvation, I have to think about it not just on an individual level. I have to think it on a cosmic level. God is doing something far bigger than just what I'm dealing with in my individual experience. And that means the plan in terms of the gospel, in the terms of the kingdom, was not to pluck me from this fallen, broken world and take me to some distant heaven in another part of the universe, which is the way we tend to think about things. This is the way we've been taught to think about it. And it's not all terribly wrong, but it's misleading. God is not going to save me from the world and then discard the world as if I'm the only part of the world that matters to him. God is redeeming all of it, right? Scripture is showing me something else. If you look at the way Christ's return is portrayed in the New Testament, the picture is of heaven descending to earth. The picture is of Jesus. Even the, the image of, of Jesus in the sky, right? The idea of us joining him in the sky and like these old hymns. That was always about welcoming him as he's coming to earth. It's interesting. If you look at John, the revelator, he's trying to explain this image of new jerusalem the heavenly city is that it's descending to earth not that we take off and go there no that it descends there's this picture that heaven and earth are gradually coming back together there's a sense that god is bringing eden back to life 
That reality that he intended in Eden is coming true all over again. God wants to dwell with humanity. God wants to wander through the garden where you and I are all over again. That's what he's doing in salvation. That's the picture we get. God is fully going to dwell with us as he always intended. The world still matters to God. You might say matter matters. Like all of this stuff that we can lay our hands on, that we love, that's so beautiful, it matters to God. It all matters. And you can conclude as well from that. Think about this. From that, we can also say, God's not just going to redeem me in some spiritual sense. God's not just redeeming my soul. When I die, God's not just going to take my soul to heaven. We think of things in terms of conversations on paradise and all of this and what happens in the intervening moments after I die. There's all kinds of questions, right? And where we've landed very often is that. God's just going to save my soul. I'm going to die, but God's going to take my soul to heaven. And this is the, the picture that we've been given. But this is why it's so important for us to talk about physical, bodily resurrection. God didn't just raise Jesus' soul. He didn't just restore Jesus' soul. Jesus was raised physically. He walked around. He appeared to all of these disciples physically. He ate. That's why they tell you these details. He was just as human as before. God physically raised him. And you and I will not just be saved in some spiritual sense. God isn't just saving our soul. He's saving all of us. All of this matters. Flesh and blood. The physical matters. God believes the physical matters. He cares about the physical, and so he has become physical. He cares about flesh and blood, and so he took on flesh and blood. He cares about redeeming this world, and so he entered into this world in order to redeem it. This is how God sees things. He's got flesh in the game. This is the reality of it. That's why it matters for us that Jesus is not just God. He is completely and thoroughly human as well. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. But then, the, again, the next question is, okay, if that's what it means for God to save us and humanity is required for him to save us, what do, what do we even mean when we talk about humanity? I think all of us would probably, because of our different experiences, we'd probably define it a little bit differently, right? What is the experience of a human being? What do we mean when we say somebody's human? But I think all of us could, could probably come to the conclusion that being human is about having limits. That's one of the, the hardest things. It's one of the earliest things you have to, to recognize. That's part of what makes being a, a child hard. You're constantly confronted with your limits. You can't do everything. You want to be able to do everything the first time you pick it up, and it's a real struggle to not be able to do it. You can't do everything, and you can't just do anything you want to because you realize it has effects. You've got limits. There are boundaries in your life, things that are off limits to you, not just because God said they're off limits, because practically you know it has effects. You can't do these things, right? You're constantly confronted with your mortality over and over again. And that's a struggle, right? You're aware all the time that you were born. And you will die. And that can make us uncomfortable, right? You suffer through things you can't understand and you can't control. And you don't know why all of it's happening. You wrestle with that. Being painful, I mean, excuse me, being human is it's painful in that way, I think. We get that. That's a huge part of being human, is the fact that we, we sometimes suffer without really being able to understand it. And each time 
we say the words of the creed. Every time we do this, we're reminded Jesus knew that experience. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is human. He knew the experience of limitations. He knew the experience of mortality and creatureliness. He understood it inside out. We say he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death. He doesn't just say he died. He says he suffered death and was buried. All pressing upon you, he really felt these things. He really dealt with these things. Jesus suffered one of the worst forms of torture humanity has ever conceived of. He really suffered through it. He died just like you will die. And he was buried just like you will be buried one day. This is who Jesus was. He doesn't keep himself at a comfortable distance from all of that. No. He's tasted of all of it. And you need to understand that. Verse 10. The author of Hebrews says, It was fitting. It was fitting. It was appropriate that God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Through what he suffered, he was made perfect. This was fitting. The pioneer of their salvation should suffer. You hear that word suffer again, and that makes sense, right? Just like the creed wants you to know Jesus truly suffered. He was a human, and so he felt what was happening to him deeply. But did you catch that other word? The author of Hebrews wants you to know Jesus suffered, but there's this other word that, that, that's so interesting. Pioneer is the translation we get. He's the pioneer of our salvation. I don't know about you guys. I don't know where your mind goes when you hear the word pioneer. Uh, but for me, immediately this week, as I was thinking about it, it sounds silly. The first thing that comes to mind is like covered wagons and heading west and an Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail. Right? And I'm not talking about like the historic movement of people to the west. I'm talking about a computer game that originated in the 70s that we all grew up playing in the 80s and 90s. Right? It's this simulation, remember? Some of you guys are, are completely clueless, but let me explain. It's a, it's a simulation of what it's like to go out west, okay? And you're playing the game. And as a child, you could invest hours of your life trying to survive and find a new home out west, right? Only to, be fi to find out after all of this that you, you've died of dysentery. <laughs> the little message would pop up on the bottom of the screen. You died of cholera. Come on, man. Dysentery? After all of this, right? There's some human suffering for you. Not that those people died all those years ago heading west, but that I just invested hours of my life trying to survive, and then something completely out of my control. I didn't do anything wrong, and now I've died of dysentery. This is awful. I don't ever want to play this game again. But as silly as it sounds, that's the real experience of humanity. Like, that kind of gets at it. It's a good translation. Jesus is the suffering pioneer. Jesus is the one who goes first. He goes before us. He makes a way for us. Jesus steps into the unknown on our behalf. This is who he is. He's made a way for us. And in the New Testament, this, this word is only used four different times. Every time they're using this word to describe Jesus. He's the pioneer. 
If you look in the Old Testament, it's used to describe the, the commanders of armies, the leaders of God's people. If you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's what you'll see. But if you look outside of Scripture, if you look at, at Greek literature, you'll see this word used a whole lot more. And actually, a lot of times what they mean with this word is something like champion, the hero, right? He's the one that makes a way. And there's one particular hero that always gets translated in this way. One particular person who's always the hero, the champion, the pioneer, and we all know him, either because of Disney or because of school, we know Hercules. Hercules was the Greek conception of the God-man. This is how they conceived of humanity and divinity mixing, right? Remember, his father was Zeus, the ancient Greek god. The way they believed in things, there's Zeus, and yet Zeus could also mess around with, with earthly women. And so he had an earthly mother, a human mother, and a god for a father. He was a god-man. That was what it looked like. And if you know from the story, his life was a mess, an absolute nightmare for that reason. But this is the way they conceived of things. And if we're being honest, Hercules is the kind of guy we'd vote for for governor. Hercules is the kind of guy we would love to see run for president because Hercules is kind of a gunslinger. He cleans up the streets. When humanity is suffering, he comes and he slays those terrible beasts that we face. He cleans up the streets like any good hero would with his club. This is Hercules, right? We can respect that. We can get on that page. He will destroy anyone and anything that stands in his way. This is the way the Greeks see the God-man. This is what it would look like for divinity and, and, divinity and humanity to mix, okay? But then there's the gospel, what we believe, what we see in the Gospels is Jesus, the God-man, who comes not to destroy anyone and anything that stands in his way, but to let them destroy him. Jesus is a different kind of pioneer, a different kind of hero. He's like the anti-hero in our minds. He doesn't fit into all of our conceptions of what he should be. Jesus is going to do war with the enemy, with death, with sin. He's going to do war with suffering and death, ultimately by letting himself suffer and die. It's upside down. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus is not running away from suffering like you and I do. As much as we would say, a huge part of the human experience is limitations. It's suffering. It's that sense of being out of control. Jesus is not running away from those things, though, like we do. We spend our lives avoiding those things. We're doing everything we can at any given moment to avoid the possibility of suffering. Jesus does not run away from those things. He's not trying to wipe it out either, like all of our heroes do. All of our comic book heroes, all of our Hollywood heroes are always trying to erase those things. Jesus swallows up death by letting it swallow him. You can't see it coming in the story. Jesus is God. And though he's capable of all of that, he's human too. And the author of Hebrews is saying he was made perfect through suffering. Jesus is a real human. You might say he's the, the realist human. That's what, what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that Jesus is the, the last Adam and the second man. 
Adam, as he was originally created, was what God wanted for man to be. And then it got ugly. Jesus is the second man, and he's the last Adam. He's the end of that and the beginning of something incredible. Jesus is opening up for you and I a whole new kind of humanity, a whole new way of being human, a whole new way of living. And none of that is possible if we can't see it. He has to put flesh and blood on what he's inviting us into. He's not just inviting us to, saying it at a distance. No, he comes and he demonstrates it for us what forgiveness looks like, what patience looks like, what love looks like in flesh and blood. That's what he's doing. It matters that Jesus was as human as you and I, not just that he was God. But here's the problem. None of us, ancient or modern, then or now, thinks it's fitting that the God of the universe should suffer. When we think about God, we don't think suffering. God's too strong. God's outside of all of that. God doesn't have to suffer. He won't let something like that happen. He can't suffer God, no. And this is the way we've normally conceived of God. And this is what's so important for us as believers when we say these things over and over again. What makes us distinct is we believe God has suffered. We believe God has exposed himself to our suffering. Jesus has become human. And when Jesus came, he did not easily exclude himself from all of the rest of it, from the reality of human experience. That's what a lot of people in the early church leaned toward. That's what we call Gnosticism. There were all of these who wanted to see Jesus as this spiritual force. He was just cloaked in humanity. He just kind of looked human. He was disguised as a human, but really he was all God. And the church pressed upon us the importance of this in those early days. He was really human. Jesus didn't wave a wand and make all of that go away. He knows our experience. The pioneer of our salvation died. And we will follow him to death. But what we press again and again in this season of Easter is we will follow him as well to resurrection and to new creation, the restoration of God's good world. We will see it. We will know the Garden of Eden as more than a story. God is bringing us back there. That's what this is all about, ultimately. In this season, we remind ourselves of that again and again. As the band comes and, and, and we move toward the table, we're reminding ourselves of that, that Easter reality. Every time we come to the table, we're reminded that Jesus was human. He was ordinary. As ordinary as the bread and the cup that we drink of, that we taste of every week. He was ordinary. Every time we're coming to the table, we're acknowledging that Christ is human. And every time we come, we're proclaiming that mystery again and again. Christ has died. And Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. And so that means wherever you find yourself, like whatever you're walking through, like whatever circumstance is pressing upon you, no matter how isolated you may feel by your circumstances, no matter how alone you may feel as a result of them, Jesus knows it. Again, not in some metaphysical sense alone, but in this truly physical sense. Not just in the sense that God knows everything. No. 
He knows what it's like to be overwhelmed with his circumstances. If you don't believe that, look at Gethsemane. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood by those closest to him. His own family couldn't make sense of Jesus. Maybe you feel that sometimes. He knows what it's like when the people you're closest with, your best friends, turn their back on you, when one of them will betray you to death. He knows it. The reality that Jesus is human means you have never been alone. You have never faced anything alone. Jesus exposed himself to all of it. The limitations you feel that you wrestle with, that suffering that you can't put your finger on or, or understand why it's happening, Jesus knows it. And there's something beautiful about it. And so as we come to the table, be reminded of it. Find hope. And that this is truly Jesus' body. That Jesus was made as real as this that we hold in our fingers. So this is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. And this is the blood of Christ, poured out for the sins of many. Take and drink. Father, we just ask in these moments that you would open our eyes to your nearness to us, to this Emmanuel reality of God with us as more than just some sort of therapeutic message, some analogy, some metaphor we use to make ourselves feel better. No, Jesus truly chose to dwell among us. God has chosen to dwell among us in human flesh, to walk along with us. Jesus is truly our brother. May we find the deepest and most abiding sense of joy and peace in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.